Welcome to the Fort Bragg PWOC podcast. Today I have the honor of having Miss Rose Drew join us. She's a really cool lady. She is our PWOC teacher for our evening Bible study. She's been part of PWOC for 36 years. She attends Airborne Artillery Memorial Chapel. Join us as she shares about how about God's faithfulness throughout her life. Good morning, ladies. Um, for those who don't know you, my name is Rose Drew, and you can see by the color of my hair that I'm one of those older women that Titus 2 talks about. In fact, this year is my 36th year with PWOC. I know that uh, you may be wondering, how come you haven't seen me on Tuesday morning? Well, that's because the last few years I've been teaching French at Fayetteville State University on Tuesday morning. But now that I'm retired from the university, I'm able to come back to Tuesday morning PWOC. And during all those years, I was involved in the evening PWOC group with which I'm still involved. So just letting you know a little bit about myself. I wanna to talk to you this morning about God's faithfulness. I know a lot of you are a lot younger than I am and you still have a lot of challenges in your life to face. So I want to let you know that God has been faithful to me for three quarters of a century. So this will encourage you as you can continue your own walk with the Lord. I wanna to read to you some verses from Psalm 71 because I feel like Psalm 71 is really the story of my life. Um, the first three verses say, In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. And I just want to let you know that this has been the case as I have walked with the Lord for many, many years. Um, verse six says, from birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. So when I was born, I was born to a young couple who were preparing for ministry. My dad was just finishing seminary and my mom was a teacher, although she didn't go back to teaching until I was in second grade. They already had one child, my older sister, Ellen, who's two and a half years older than I am. So when I was four months old, we moved to a little town in Indiana called Oxford, where my, my father pastored his first church. It was really an idyllic life for my sister and me. We lived in this big old parsonage and we had a huge yard. My dad built us a swing set and a teeter-totter and a sandbox. And we just, as young children, we just had a really great life. Then when uh, I was in second grade, we moved to a little bigger city called Attica, Indiana, where my mom got a job teaching music at the school. And my dad had taken a job at another church about 30 minutes from Attica, which was out in the country, um, so that we drove out there every Sunday morning. Again, we had a really idyllic life. 
our house was a little smaller, our yard was a little smaller, but we lived in a neighborhood with lots of kids. My sister and I played with all the kids from morning to night in the summertime. We were close enough to school that we could walk to school. And so we had a wonderful time. But when I was 13, my mom got a job in the big city of Lafayette, Indiana. And so we moved there when I was ready to start high school. This was not a pleasant time for me. In fact, my high school years were probably the most miserable years of my life. Psalm 71 says, for you have been my hope, Lord, my confidence since my youth. And then it says, since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. So this was a time when the Lord was really teaching me. Now, in the church that I attended, in order to be considered definitely a believer, you had to answer an invitation and come before the congregation and make a confession of faith in Christ and be baptized. And I had done that when I was 11. But now I was 13 and I was facing a lot of difficult situations with the other kids in the school. As you probably know, kids of that age can be very cruel. And my high school classmates made fun of me all the time for two reasons. One, they knew that my dad was a pastor and that I was a Christian. And number two, because I got really good grades. What they didn't understand was that I had to get good grades because I wanted to go to college. And in order to go to college, I was going to have to be able to get a scholarship because my parents did not have the money to send me to the university. So the only respite in my high school years was my involvement with singing groups with the acapella choir at my high school with a special group called the Madrigal Singers. And it's in these groups that I made some friends. Although I couldn't always do the things that my so-called friends did because they violated my moral standards. And a few times I did compromise, the Holy Spirit made me so uncomfortable that I never did it again. So finally, in June of 1962, I graduated from high school and got ready to go to college. And in that fall, I began at Indiana University, where my older sister was already a student. I decided to major in foreign language, and I discovered that in the, on the college campus, those things that the kids have made fun of me about in high school were actually considered assets by the group that I fell into in college. A lot of my, my group were already Christians and, they, and good, good grades were considered a, a positive thing. So my first year of college went by and it was a, it was a really good year. The only drawback was that it seemed to be that the guys that I met, all, all of them were church dropouts. So I was wondering if I would ever meet a Christian guy that I could actually get serious about. There was one other drawback in my freshman year. It was at this time, my dad's health began to fail. He had to give up ministry and my family started going to another church there in Lafayette that was pastored by a buddy of his. So when I came home, 
After my freshman year of college, it was evident the whole summer that things were getting worse. Now I had a summer job every summer because I needed to earn as much money as I could for college. But when I went uh, back to school in my sophomore year, my sister at that time was in her senior year, it was evident to both of us that my dad was very seriously ill. And in October of that year, he was put in the hospital. And it wasn't too long before we got the call that he had passed away and gone to be with the Lord. This was the first time I'd ever faced a situation like this. I really didn't know anything about grieving. In fact, I think I had the mistaken idea that if you were a Christian, you weren't supposed to grieve. But we went home for the funeral. We were gone a week from school. And it was a very, very difficult time. When we came back to school, there was no time to grieve because it was time for midterm exams. And then we had um, classes and then it was time to come home from Christmas vacation. So by the time we came home from vacation, I was really exhausted, both physically and emotionally. So I spent the first week of my Christmas vacation just sleeping. And I found out later that that's one way that your body deals with stress, is just to have you sleep. Now, the second week of Christmas vacation, I had planned to spend it catching up with all my studies because in those days we had final exams the week after we got back to the university from Christmas vacation. However, the pastor of the church my family was attending had organized a brunch for college students. He wanted to check with us and make sure that we were doing okay and that we were being corrupted by our college professors. So I wasn't gonna go because I had so much studying to do, but he called and invited me and my sister personally. So then I felt obligated. So we went, we were late uh, at the door. We ran into another a young man who was also late. And so the three of us sat together his name was Eddie Drew, and um, as we got to know each other, as we, we talked and conversed during the brunch, uh, we shared a lot. And um, then after I got home, he called me and asked me for a date that night, and I was so surprised that I said yes before I even thought. <laughs> so the rest of my Christmas vacation, when I wasn't studying, I was going out with Ed. And as I drove back to school after vacation was over, I suddenly realized how very much I missed him and how the emotional attachment between us was very strong. So that semester, that would have been 1964, we spent a lot of time driving back and forth between Lafayette and Bloomington where Indiana University is located. And at the end of the semester, I decided that I would transfer to Purdue where Ed was a student, which I did. So the, the year 64, 65, we were both at Purdue spending a lot of time together. We realized that we really loved each other. We wanted to get married. So we decided uh, in the summer of 65 that we would get married in August of that year. And we picked August because he had to work all summer to make enough money for us to live on. And I had to work all summer to make enough money to pay for the wedding. So we got married. We moved into a little apartment. And we had a wonderful school year together, 
sharing our lives and sharing our studies. And both of our grades were good that year. So now Ed had planned to have a career in the military. And uh, he was in Air Force ROTC planning to be a fighter pilot like his brother Phil. So when he graduated, he was going to go on active duty in the Air Force. But that last year when I was at Purdue, I found out about a special program sponsored by Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania for students in foreign languages to spend a summer in Europe. I had no idea whether I would get accepted in this program, but I applied anyway, and I got a scholarship to go to France for the summer of 1966, which I did. This was also a very challenging time in my life because I had never been out of the United States. In fact, I'd hardly been out of Indiana and Illinois. I had heard about spiritual dryness but I had never experienced it until I got to France. This country was spiritually dry. Even when you went to church, it seemed like the only one who was enthusiastic about the word was the pastor. It was also very confusing because once you start to think in another language, it's difficult to read in two different languages. So I was trying to read my Bible in English and think and, and function all the rest of the time in French, and it was very difficult. So my Bible reading kind of diminished until I was able to finally get hold of a French Bible. I also saw a lot of things going on in that country that shocked me. Uh, one of the things that all of us girls had a problem with was the attitude of Frenchmen. We finally got to the place where if we walked down the street, we walked with our eyes on the sidewalk because if you lifted your face and even met their eyes, they were immediately over there asking you to either go for a walk with them, go to have coffee or whatever. So it was a little scary. In fact, in one time in Paris, uh, a young man approached me that way. And then when I said no, he followed me and I finally ducked into a store and had the gal let me out the back door so that I could get away from him. So by the time I finished my three months in Europe, I was really stressed emotionally and spiritually. And I remember that I went back to my dorm room in Paris one afternoon and just spent the whole afternoon talking to the Lord and crying and confessing and just trying to get everything straightened out with him. So it was a really relief when I got home. In fact, home now was Texas, where my husband was stationed. Um, but there, everybody in Texas spoke Spanish, so I felt like I'd spent three months wasting my time. <laughs> anyway, so we settled in. We lived in a, a house that had four apartments. There were three other military couples there, and we spent a lot of time together and supported each other. And then got a real shock when my husband decided he didn't want to be a fighter pilot after all. So he dropped out of the flight program and they sent us to Mississippi for nine months to retrain him in aviation and electronics. But what he really wanted to do was get into intelligence. So he had talked to his brother about it and his brother had advised him to switch from the Air Force to the Army because the Army had a much 
better intelligence program than the Air Force. So that's what we did. Uh, they transferred us to Tidewater, Virginia. His orders came through to transfer to the Army. But along with those orders came orders to Vietnam. This was at the height of the Vietnam War. And all of us in the military knew that everybody would go sooner or later. It was just a matter of when. So he was supposed to leave for Vietnam in October of 1968. So in the spring of 68, they sent us to Massachusetts for special training before he went to Vietnam. I will never understand why in New England, where it was chilly, they would train guys to go to the jungles of Vietnam. But, you know, that's just one of the mysteries that we have in the military. I'm sure you understand that. So we had decided that I would go back to Tidewater and stay while he was gone because I had gotten a teaching job there and a place to live. And so in October of 68, I dropped my husband off to the war on my way to school one morning. I had been very anxious about this whole year because when I was in France being separated from my husband, I didn't feel like I'd handled it very well. So I told the Lord if he didn't do something that I was probably gonna lose my mind before the year was over. But I wasn't really prepared for what he did. I discovered in Tidewater, Virginia, there was a group of young people about my age that were involved in the spiritual move of the Holy Spirit that was going on at that time. That was called the Jesus Movement. And I began attending their Bible study on Saturday nights. And the gals invited me over for dinner and the guys took care of my car. And it was as if the Lord was carrying me through that year which he did. So when my husband came home in October of 1969, I was more than ready for him to be there. But we discovered a new challenge. In the last weeks that he'd been in Vietnam, he'd had a serious infection which damaged his vocal cords. So when he came home, he couldn't talk, he could only whisper. And I remember when I met him, you know, because when somebody whispers, you, you whisper back to them. And my first thought was when we have kids, they're never going to learn to speak right because we're all going to be whispering all the rest of our lives. <laughs> so anyway, we went back, we were sent to Arizona, Sierra Vista, Arizona, which is definitely a desert. And while we were there, we had our own wilderness experience because my husband really couldn't do his job because he couldn't talk. So to make a long story short, it would be 11 years before they finally figured out what was wrong with him and were able to give him and have him taken, have him uh, undergo an operation that improved his voice. This operation meant that they would sever the nerves on one side of the vocal cords so that the vocal cords were controlled by the nerves and the muscles on the other side. And that gave him kind of a voice because the two vocal cords were supposed to join together and, and then vibrate together. This condition is called spastic dysphonia 
And what had happened is that the, the infection had damaged the nerves that controlled the muscles that controlled his vocal cords. But the operation worked up to a point, although the two vocal cords did not come together like they were supposed to. So they had to go back in again and coat one of them with Teflon so that they would uh, join together and then vibrate together. So we had a good time giving him a hard time about how he had a, a Teflon slick throat and the food would just slide down. So once he got his voice mostly back, it wasn't like it was before. It just sounded like he was very hoarse. Um, then he was accepted in, back into the Army. Uh, he was in the reserves for nine months and then recalled to active duty. So in 1984, our first duty station as a chaplain uh, was here at Fort Bragg. The Lord had called him to the chaplaincy when we were still in Arizona. And of course, everybody told him it was crazy because he couldn't talk. But he decided anyway, and we had gone to seminary and we'd had three kids and, but we hadn't been accepted until he had that operation. So we started our ministry here at Fort Bragg, which is the first time that I was in PWC. Um, we, of course, had the military life. Um, we, after Fort Bragg, we went to Italy and then a lot of other places. And um, then after our first uh, tour in Germany, we were stationed in Texas. By this time, we were empty nesters. And, um, but we had this strange feeling that our parenting days were not over. So we weren't quite sure what to do until I saw an article in the newspaper when we were home for Christmas vacation about older children in the foster care system waiting for forever families. So we decided as soon as we got back to the States after our tour in Germany was over that we would look into this which we did. We were stationed in at Fort Hood in Colleen, Texas, and we ended up adopting a little girl who was 12 years old. She'd been removed from her alcoholic mother when she was seven, and she had spent the next five years in a different foster home every year. So when she came to live with us, there was a lot of anger and bitterness in her for what she had been through. And a lot of that was directed at me because I was the mother figure. Soon after the adoption was finalized in 2000, we got orders to go back to Germany. So of course she had to go with us. And this was a very difficult experience for her. In fact, our first months in Germany were really miserable. But the Lord was faithful to get us through these months and to help her to adjust. She got involved with the youth group. And by the time we left Germany, she was sorry to leave. When we uh, came back, we um, think we were, we, were, we were stationed back here at Fort Bragg and it was getting close to time for my husband to retire. So, we came back in 2003 and in 2004, he did retire here at Fort Bragg. And then 
our uh, endorsing agent came and asked him to take over as the endorsing agent for our churches, which meant that we would have to move back to Texas, which we did. So he worked as the endorsing agent for a year, but then in 2005, they discovered that he had cancer. It was a strange kind of cancer. It was not in his lung, but it was on his lung. And it was eating away at the tissue of his lung. So they, they, they hoped that if they removed the upper lobe of his lung, that that would take care of it. <coughs> but when they actually did the operation, they discovered that it had sent tentacles all the way down the lung. So they had to remove the entire lung. And they thought that they had gotten all the cancer so 2006 was a fun year for us. Uh, we had a lot of time together, went to a lot of garage sales, um, had coffee together, <coughs> visited our kids and grandkids. Then in December of 2006, they discovered that the cancer had come back. And now it was in various parts of his body. So they started chemotherapy but the chemotherapy always almost killed him. So after a, an heroic experience where I had to rush him back to the hospital after his dose of chemotherapy, we decided that chemotherapy was not the way to go. Unfortunately, there wasn't really much else that they could do. So he finally went to be with the Lord in June of 2007. So after his death, I moved back here to Fayetteville because we still had a house here and my two sons were in Raleigh and Durham and I wanted to be close to them. But I can honestly say that in the 14 years since he went to heaven, the Lord has been very, very faithful to take care of me, to provide for me, to meet my spiritual needs, to meet my emotional needs, to meet my physical needs. In August of 2007, I went back to PWC here at Fort Bragg, and that was a real comfort to me because I felt like at PWC I could be normal because it wasn't something that Ed had been involved in. I could feel like myself. And so that was a, a real positive experience for me, and I've been in PWC here ever since. So I want to encourage you because Psalm 71 says, though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. And the Lord has done that. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. You will increase my honor and comfort me once more. I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, my God. I will sing praise to you with the lyre, Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you, I whom you have redeemed. My tongue will tell of your righteous acts all day long. So my prayer now is verse 18. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. So I hope that I have, as I have shared with you, the faithfulness of the Lord in my life and the mighty acts that he has done, that you will be encouraged that if you continue to walk with the Lord, he will faithfully take care of you and all of your needs.
Thank you. Hi, thank you for listening to Protestant Women of the Chapel, Fort Bragg. We are workers together for Christ. If you've been inspired, please share our podcast with those who could use a good word.